uh, while you're eating to save money, I'd like to make some announcement. Uh, contribution from you for Students Food Bank will be matched by fund accumulated in SACPA fund. And uh, Knud and Annalisa are counting money, so you will know very soon how much money is raised from donation from you and uh, will be matched by SACPA uh, Treasury. Uh, now, uh, the time has come for question and answer. Uh, can we give a John a time to finish his dessert? Yeah, it'll be there. It will be there. Okay. Uh, those who want to ask questions to John, please come to the uh, microphone over there. And uh, please keep your comments short. I am a rather severe chairperson of any meeting. And uh, if uh, you're making speech, I'll cut you off. So uh, make statement short. Ask up to two questions, please. And uh, uh, we'll have question and answer period for half an hour. Uh, I think I mentioned about uh, first session in January to be 50th anniversary of the university, and Mike Perry is going to talk about the reason why Lethbridge decided to build a new university on the west side. Uh, John, would you come to the podium and... Uh, uh, Please. Uh, my name is Van Christou. Uh, thank you so much, John, for that delightful presentation. Um, um, a, a question that came to mind while you were speaking um, was, I know there are many different sects in Bo Buddhism all through the centuries, all the way from, uh, from uh, northeastern uh, India uh, through to Japan. All, amongst them, were there any that were, that, uh, spoke out or, or had strong feelings about being anti-war? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question and certainly a question that Buddhists have thought about because there are the values of compassion and, and, and values of, of nonviolence. Um, Buddhism doesn't automatically align with any any main political orientation and I would say in the in the sweep of its history it has a strong track record in terms of talking about the importance of nonviolence of, of not participating in war but by no means a spotless record I mean, there there have been skirmishes between Buddhist groups like in medieval Japan Tendai monks coming down from the mountain and, and burning the temples of other monks and, and sort of political turf and power struggles. Uh, there are also critiques of Buddhist complacency with, uh, with the Pacific War, with World War II. 
uh, not just Buddhist, uh, Japanese, Buddhist, Japanese, Christian, Japanese religious figures in general, though again, not all of them. So some Buddhist groups, uh, for example, one of the new religious movements in Buddhism that became really popular after World War II is Soka Gakkai. And this comes out of Nichiren Buddhism from medieval times. And the two founders both spent their years in the, uh, the late 30s and early 40s in jail because they weren't supportive of the larger uh, Japanese uh, imperial project. They were, they were quite anti-war. And Nichiren Buddhism is one form that you continue to see in Japan, in Asia, in North America, doing a lot of uh, marching and banging drums as, as peace demonstrations and, and anti-war demonstrations. So in general, I would say, Buddhism has a strong record on that front, though, though not spotless. In terms of your question of, of, different, of different groups, of different sects uh, of Buddhism, uh, yeah, some, like on the Nichiren side, have a particularly strong record in, in recent times. Uh, but this is, one of the, this is one of the topics that I think is a bit upsetting to some of my students at university. When they come into a course on Buddhism, they often come in with a uh, a uh, romanticized view of the tradition that is fairly accurate in some ways, but when I talk about the political use of, of Buddhism in, in, in Sri Lanka today, or the persecution of the Rohingya minority in, in southern Burma and some of those places, they're often surprised to hear that Buddhists are ever on a kind of aggressive uh, side of, of, of any conflict, and, and there are instances of it. So. So it, it's a mix, but Buddhists generally do well on that front. Uh, my name's Cheryl Bradley, and I appreciate your presentation. I was really thought-provoking. Um, it's my understanding, and I may be wrong, that uh, a key foundation of Buddhism is the stories of Buddha, stories about his life. And so I've, I don't know those stories very well. You probably know them much better than I do. Um, and I'm just curious to know, um, thinking about the Christian uh, tradition around Christmas and the stories that go back, that people tell for Christianity, there's the one of the Magi coming and bringing gifts to the newborn baby. Um, and so gift-giving is kind of a common story that's associated with the, the Christmas, the birth of Christ. Is there any examples in Buddhism where there was a gift-giving story that, I, that sort of resonates for Buddhists? Uh, you're absolutely right. The life story of the Buddha is, is central to the tradition. And even as Buddhism spreads to different parts of the world and you have all of these, these different varieties that have different languages and quite different practices, they all make use of the stories of, of the Buddha. And even when the Buddha leaves his, his home where he was a prince training to become a king and he shaves his head, he drops away his old identity, his fancy clothes and hair, and the expectations of his family, and becomes a religious renunciant seeking these big picture questions about suffering. Uh, that's still followed when people become a, a monk or a nun and shave their head. They, they are modeling themselves after the Buddha. 
that December Rohatsu session in Japan I mentioned where they're doing all of that seated meditation. That's modeled on the life story of the Buddha and his practices. But one of the things that's important to remember about how the story of the Buddha is told within the Buddhist world, within countries where, where uh, Buddhism has been a dominant tradition for a long time, those stories typically don't start with the figure we call the historical Buddha or Shakyamuni from India 2,500 years ago. So for your question with gift giving, a favorite story that you frequently see in places like Thailand, for example, is about Visantra, one of the lives of the Buddha before he becomes the Buddha. And that story focuses on gift giving in particular, on dana, on the, the, the um, virtue of generosity. And it's a story that's kind of extreme that maybe doesn't resonate quite as easily with a lot of Western audiences because he, Visantra is a prince and he gives away this sacred elephant of the kingdom that can bring rain and do other things like that to uh, another country that needs it because they have drought and the people are upset and they want him kicked out so he's kicked out. He ends up giving up the carriage, the horses, he ends up giving up his, his children, his wife, just giving them away. Uh, so you have this sort of story of extreme gift giving and generosity and Buddhists see these stories of the Jataka tales, the tales of the Buddha before he was the Buddha, as perfecting these different virtues before being in a karmic position to become the awakened one. So that's where gift giving factors in more directly. There are other parallels and in hagiographies, in, in sort of um, the, the, the biographies of sacred people uh, like Christ or, or the Buddha, there are a lot of these miraculous elements. So for the Buddha, you get things like um, the pregnancy comes about through a dream of a white elephant. The Buddha's born out of the, the right side of, of his mother Maya. The tree limbs are bending down so she can grab onto them. You have these sort of supernatural elements. The Buddha takes steps. Well, he isn't the Buddha then. The young prince uh, takes seven steps with lotuses blossoming uh, under his feet and proclaims this is his last existence. So you do get a lot of miraculous stories around the birth. You don't have wise men coming with gifts, but you do have a holy man coming down and giving a prophecy that has two different options. One is to become a Chakravartin, a, a world uniting king. And the other is to become this great religious figure, a world conqueror of a more religious type. So then a lot of the Buddha's story revolves around his father, the king, trying to keep him from the religious side of the prophecy, keep him in that political mode of training to be a prince, which of course at a certain point he breaks away from. So those life stories are, are, are really interesting, both where they converge and where they diverge from a tradition like Christianity. Hi, my name is Heather Oxman. Um, can you compare and contrast for me the enlightenment of the Buddha and the light-carrying aspects of Jesus? Yeah, it's an, an interesting question for this time of year. I mean, even when we're looking at traditions from earlier than, than Christianity for Christmas, for lighting the trees, for celebrating the depth of winter and the darkest nights by producing lights and signaling that things will be turning around, we have those ideas of light and mind already uh, with, with these traditions. The enlightenment of the Buddha, the term is a little tricky because if you look at the, the Sanskrit term is, is nirvana, that's the extinguishing or blowing out, the blowing out of a candle, but in this case the blowing out of desire and, and suffering and, and, and ignorance. And Buddha, the term itself means awakening. 
So he became awake. It's a title. It's an accomplishment, not a, a specific name. So the emphasis there was on awakening. They didn't use a term like enlightenment. Satori in Japanese is also awakening. It's translating that same idea of sort of waking up to reality as it actually is. But when Western scholars started to grapple with Buddhism in the, in the 19th century, they were coming out of their own enlightenment tradition. And part of what they liked about the Buddha was he seemed to be this enlightened humanist sort of figure who got around some of the problems they were finding in their own Christian tradition. So they used this term enlightenment that we still use now. So in, in one sense, that term is a little bit misleading for early on in Buddhism, because they talked about awakening, waking up more than, than light. You do still get this little star, this morning star, and you do get stories of what this awakening was all about. Uh, they talk about his seated meditation under the Bodhi tree, the, the tree of enlightenment, mm -hmm. how he goes through these different stages of seeing all of his previous lives, like the one I mentioned in that earlier response as, as Vasantara. And then he sees the workings of karma in his lives and all lives, this sort of law of cause and effect, where you don't have a divinely meted out justice from, from a god who's kind of looking over things, but it's just sort of the natural way things work based on whether you plant positive seeds through your actions that come to positive fruition later or, or negative seeds. He sees how all of that works. He sees how everything is, is connected, and that's what he wakes up to. So that's what the tradition really, really emphasizes uh, more than light in that sense. So I don't know if I can, can quite satisfy the, the question because that term enlightenment is a little more our thing when uh, Buddhism made the jump to the West. Uh, before Mary asks question, I'd like to say you donated $300 altogether. So matched by SACPA fund, uh, there will be $600 donated to students' food bank. Thank you very much for your generosity. Mary, thank you. Uh, my name is Mary Shillington. Thanks, John, for your insight and information. It's been very interesting for me. You alluded to... Um, the number of people who came earlier years to Canada and particularly southern Alberta and I wondered if there was a story about that and why they chose to come to Canada and specifically to southern Alberta and if, if there is a story could you tell us that? Sure I, I can tell you part of it uh, there are probably other people here who who, who know more or, or other parts but as many of you know a lot of the immigration in the late 1800s that came out of Japan went to places like the, the West Coast, Vancouver, uh, Hawaii, before mainland US, not as much directly to Lethbridge. But from the early 1900s, from around 1903, 1905, we start to get people down in the Raymond area, some working for, uh, what is the name of the sugar uh, company? You see the, which one is it? Taylor Sugar. Yeah, so working um, there, working uh, for the railroads, and then some who came to work for the railroads fairly quickly left that for mining as a, a better economic opportunity here in southern Alberta. So they came for a few reasons early on, economic incentives, and the idea behind most early immigrants who went from Japan to North America, most intended to go back to make their fortune and then to go back to Japan. But at a certain point, they realized that wasn't going to happen. Either they weren't making their fortune in quite the way they'd wanted to, or were putting down roots. So you started to have 
uh, more marriages coming about, having children, that's when you start to also get uh, Buddhist ministers, for example, coming out to provide that function for the community that at that point realized they're probably not, not heading back. So you have that early economic opportunity, and we have those strong roots in southern Alberta. Uh, Raymond, for example, the first Buddhist temple east of the Rocky Mountains in Canada was right here in Raymond in 1929. So this is well before World War II. But with World War II, of course, in, in February of 1946, after Pearl Harbor, you have the forced relocation, a real dark chapter in the history of Canada and the US taking people from coastal British Columbia and forcing them to go inland into different internment camps in British Columbia, or they had the option to come to southern Alberta to work on the beet farms. And the sugar beet farming, you know, hard work, and, and this wasn't the background for many of the people forced into this. Many were merchants and, and fishermen and, and other kinds of occupations. But if they came to southern Alberta, they could generally stay together as a family, where some of the work camps in BC, they had to split up. So that was one of the motivations to come. And the numbers, I don't fully remember, but my, my basic recollection is before World War II, we had about 600 Japanese and Japanese-Canadian Buddhists in all of Alberta with the forced relocation that went up to about 3,000. So we're talking about a five-fold increase, even though there was a strong community here already. And the strength of that community played a major role because the Buddhist community in Raymond was very well respected. A lot of local politicians and others went to bat for some of the ministers and others preventing some of the uh, uh, being sent back to, to, to Japan. And many who came here, although not of their own volition, they saw the strength of that community here, the Buddhist temple, the rest of it, and that did help motivate quite a few to stay after, uh, after World War II was over. Hi, my name is Bob Campbell. Thank you for your remarks. Uh, very uh, well done. Uh, further, when Cheryl was asking about uh, parallel stories and so on, I'd like to recommend a book. Uh, Marcus Borg is called The Parallel Sayings. Uh, you'll be quite amazed when you see that comparing uh, the uh, sayings of the Buddha and of Jesus. Uh, so that is Marcus Borg, The Parallel Sayings. The one question, and, it, and you may not have, we don't want to have time probably to go into it, but there are those scholars who will say that uh, G Jesus actually was influenced by Buddhist teachings because of the way the uh, commercial trade routes at that time, a lot of the traders were Buddhist, and they did interact in the so-called holy land and so on. So I wonder if you want to comment on that. Yeah, I have a, a brief comment on that. Um, we don't have a lot of hard historical data to support that, but there is a fair bit of anecdotal evidence, and as you point out, these areas have been in, in trade with each other for a long time. Uh, about 250 years before Christ, the Emperor Ashoka in India became a champion of the Buddhist tradition, and he did send out Buddhist missionaries to all parts of the world. And he talks about sending missionaries to the north and northwest, to areas of, of the Mediterranean world where you could have that kind of interaction. But we don't really hear what, what became of them. We do see biblical stories. Um, for example, uh, Josephat is a character who shows up in the Bible, and that appears to just be a transliteration, a way a word has moved from one language to the other, not being translated, but just kind of sounded out differently for bodhisattva, for the Buddhist 
uh, sort of heroic figure who sticks around to help everyone achieve awakening. So there, there are some references like that that do suggest there may be some influence. And as you, you pointed out, the, the Buddhist tradition starts, you know, a good four or five hundred years uh, but before Christianity, but it's hard to, to, to pin down too directly. Historical evidence is pretty scant on that front, but it's, it's interesting. Hello, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. Uh, I like to uh, recognize the people that bought food to, for the, for the uh, food banks as well. There was uh, several packages of food bought to the uh, event today. So thank you very much to those. And I also like to thank uh, Country Kids and Catering for a wonderful uh, Christmas meal today. John, my question relates to uh, consumerism around Christmas. Obviously, uh, uh, China and Japan has benefited immensely from our, our <laughs> buying of stuff that we don't really need. Uh, so uh, how does that balance with the simple Buddhism lifestyle? Yeah, I could pretend that's easy. <laughs> um, yeah, there, there's, there's a lot going on there for sure. I mean, not only has benefited from the consumerism in North America around Christmas, but even if you look at things like some of the old animated classics, Frosty the Snowman, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, those two both were done in uh, Japanese studios uh, back when you could outsource that to Japan because it was quite a bit less expensive and they were technically very good at animation even early on. So some of those sort of Christmas classics here uh, that aren't so much on the religious themes anyway have, have a, a connection to Japan. And of course, the U.S. played that major role in Japan after World War II for its own interests in, in, in Cold War ideology of not wanting communism to spread. They kept this uh, umbrella over Japan uh, both protecting it militarily so it didn't need to spend money uh, on its own uh, military, that part was fine with the Buddhists, but then also helping to um, jumpstart its economy and using the Korean War in part to, to really get it going. So yeah, there are all these historical and economic mixes that, that led Japan's economy to really take off and then uh, China's considerably later but now much, much stronger than Japan's. The role of Buddhism in all of that is, is, is hard to say. I mean. In both China and Japan, religious identity is rarely specific to just one tradition. At the university, when we do our big world religion course, the first half looks at Western traditions. The second half looks at Asian traditions. And for the Western traditions, and even for Hinduism and Buddhism, we look at a tradition at a time. When we get to East Asia, we don't do that anymore. We do a section on Chinese religion, a section on Japanese religion, and then that's how I do my second year courses because you can't understand individual traditions in isolation in East Asia. In China, it's very typical to be Buddhist, Confucian, and Taoist all at once, as well as popular religion. In Japan, uh, Shinto and, and Buddhist, and many in Japan say they have no religion, but that's partly the kind of the problem of the category of the religion, of, of the way it's been framed. So there's, there's this mix, but a lot of the actual religious practices you see in East Asia, a lot of the religious practices you see, I think, worldwide, have a fairly strong emphasis on this worldly benefit. 
on going to a shrine before an exam to do well, that kind of thing. It's very common in kind of popular religious practice. For those who are closely involved in a tradition like Jodo Shinshu Buddhism, there's a lot of emphasis on gratitude, on being grateful. So there's a real wariness of that consumerism. Some Buddhists are also quite philosophically minded. They look to their tradition and they, they think through some of those issues of, of, of desire and suffering. So they don't want to be, be caught in, in some of the snares of consumerism. But Southeast Asia, you know, Buddhist countries, East Asia, when you just see a lot of the day-to-day -day life of people and their day-to-day -day concerns, a lot of those concerns are practical benefits and also material security and, uh, and not, not so different from, from here. So there's a deep Buddhist influence, but I don't think it always interferes directly with some of that acquisitive nature that may be more basically human. Bev Mendel-Atherstone, thank you so very much for your talk. Um, I thought choosing that Simpson episode was wonderful. <laughs> Years ago, uh, in, from 1989 to 91, my husband and I and our children lived in, in Islamabad, Pakistan. <clears throat> and we went to Taxila, which is one of the Alexander-created cities, about 2,000 years old. Um, there we saw um, Bodhas Vitas, that were carved in the Greco-Roman style. Yeah. Um, again, just underscoring what you were saying about the, the incredible exchange of information along the Silk Roots. Uh, so I'm wondering, what, is, what exactly is a Bodhisattva? And I'm also wondering, in terms of this exchange of things, and from your talk, that people wanted to be more, in the 2000s, they wanted to embrace um, Eastern religion. Do you see in your in your research, maybe it's not inside your field, but do you see sort of a, uh, a sharing of this, um, of Buddhism into our culture, into the North American um, culture? Do you see kind of a, a blending of Christianity and Buddhism in some ways? Um, I'm, and I'm, I'm just thinking of how Karma, and I think karma is actually Hinduism, but Buddha was a Hindu prince. Yeah. So I'm just thinking of karma and the way that we talk about what goes around comes around. We've sort of adopted that idea. So are you seeing some, uh, some sharing of ideas in North America from Buddhism? And what is the Bodhisattva? So um, th this is that kind of style you're describing. This statue of Maitreya is in that kind of Gandharan style that has a lot of Greek influence. And yeah, absolutely, those trade routes, um, especially during periods like the Kushana Empire from, from just before the Common Era to, to just uh, on, on this other side of it, supported Buddhism, had trade going in all directions. They had two capitals, and one had this style, and one had a very different style from further east in India. So we see a lot of that. For the term, uh, th this is the bodhisattva term that I mentioned before, right? Yeah, so early on in Buddhism, early mainstream Buddhism, uh, the types that we still see today as like Theravada or the tradition of the elders, they use this term as a Buddha in training. Uh, like that story of Vasantra that I mentioned where you have these earlier lives of the Buddha perfecting different values. So they had the term and then eventually such a bodhisattva would become a Buddha. In the Mahayana, the greater vehicle, the type that spread and is dominant in places like East Asia, where I s spent most of the time today, 
they use the term differently and they emphasize it much more. They have the idea that because of the importance of compassion, that an even higher ideal than becoming awakened in your own right so that you get out of the cycles of birth and death and rebirth, an even higher ideal is to perfect these virtues and then use them to sort of save everyone else, to bring other people to awakening. So the bodhisattva becomes the heroic ideal. And this was important for its spread to places like China because China already had Confucianism and Taoism, long-standing religious traditions that were very concerned about Buddhism. They didn't like the idea of monasticism in particular. To them, it looked parasitic. You're not producing anything, you're not paying taxes, you're not serving in the military, but worse of all, you're not having kids to continue the family line, and if you're leaving your parents and you're not producing children, there's no one for the ancestor worship or the ancestor veneration. But because of this bodhisattva ideal, this heroic ideal of saving everyone, that really won places like China over to Buddhism in a way that I don't think it could have if it was just using that other model of the bodhisattva. So, so the term gets used differently, but it plays a really, really important role, particularly in Buddhism in East Asia and, and Central Asia, places like Tibet too. For the mix in the West, great observation, be a long discussion. Uh, in fact, this spring I'm doing a 4,000 level seminar on that, Asian religions in the West. And we're looking at a lot of different sources, a lot of ways these things are coming together. So yeah, come to that. Uh, in very short order, I'll just pick up on your example. Karma is a great example. You're right, that comes out of Hinduism. The basic religious philosophical view of early Buddhism also comes out of Hinduism. So karma, rebirth, all of those kinds of things. There's some things they reject, the caste system, the authority of the Vedic literature, but they keep karma. And karma is a good example because we recognize the term here. It shows up in popular culture like, what was this sitcom? My, my name is Earl, I think, uh, where he, he learns about karma and then worries about his actions. But in the West, it's typically used, I would argue, um, just talking about this lifetime. Maybe even the same day or week or month, you know, you do something, you're going to get your comeuppance. And it might have a poetic uh, justice kind of uh, aspect to it. In the Buddhist world, the sense of karma, you're always planting these karmic seeds that can come to fruition later. Later in that day, later in that life, maybe the next life, maybe many lives down the road. So karma plays a larger role. It's very much seen as a natural kind of cosmic law but it also plays out in a much longer time span than what we usually see in the West. And that example, I think, is reasonably good for your larger question, where yes, you're seeing all kinds of Asian religious influences, Asian popular culture, but it's always adapting in different local ways that takes on some of the sensibility that was already here. So karma is gonna be the offspring of Buddhist and Hindu ideas of, of karma and Western ideas that were already there of poetic justice, right? So it's going to mix those. Um, I see Carol. Uh, she'll be the last questioner. But if you don't mind, Carol, before you start asking questions, this, since this is our last session of the year, let's give big applause to the kitchen staff who gave us three course hot lunch every Thursday. And thank you very much. I hope you have a good holiday and a Merry Christmas. Thank you. Especially today was wonderful. Thank you. And Carol, I'm sorry. That's okay. You'll be the last. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> keep it short. Um, 
Wow. Well, my one was about uh, the oh, sorry, Carol Sakia. Um, the Shinto religion in Japan, people there of my generation can hardly tell them apart. Mm -hmm. And yeah. some of that makes sense based on what you've said today about how we here in my generation can hardly sometimes tell what we do as Christians and what we do as Buddhists apart. Yeah. Um, so if you could speak to that and I'll eliminate, I'll delete my other question. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That That is the norm um, for many to not necessarily be that self-conscious about the, the differences between the tradition. Uh, there's even terms early on in, in Japanese religion like Shinbutsu Shugyo, the kind of combining of Shinto and Buddhism. And some arguments can even be made, this is playing out in the academic world right now, that rather than talking about Shinto as the indigenous religion that was all, all, always and already there before Buddhism came in, many are seeing Shinto as already kind of a creation in response to Buddhism coming in. If Buddhism or Butsudo is the way of the Buddha, what did we have? We had Shinto, the way of the Shin, the way of the gods or the kami. So I would argue that they were pretty closely connected from early on. They've been closely connected for most of their history. The aberration, the unusual part, was in the middle of the 1800s where there was an attempt to aggressively divide them. Shin Butsu Bunri, dividing Shinto from Buddhism. And it was a brief sometimes violent persecution of Buddhism to take Buddhist elements out of the mix as part of a nationalistic movement that went with the restoration of the, the Emperor Meiji. And that was very unusual and also, I would say, uh, very ineffective. But for the most part, they've been closely together. And there are also Buddhists in Japan who aren't that... They don't spend much time thinking about which sect of Buddhist they are either. They sometimes find out when they go to a funeral because a lot of the different Buddhist activities are similar, whichever group you are. There are differences for sure, but, but a lot of the activities are similar, and a lot of the religious activities in Japan and in China, they are just what you do. The bye-bye in, in China, the sort of religious things of daily life, where um, a, a wedding, the, the New Year's, these are things that make sense to go to, to a Shinto shrine. Uh, but other things make sense to go to a Buddhist temple, but there isn't this big wrestling with identity of which one do I go to, or is it okay to do this or that because I'm a Buddhist or I'm a follower of Shinto. That close connection without a real clear awareness of where that line is always drawn is absolutely the norm for most of, of the history in Japan. My fault, as usual. Thank you, John. Yep, very this welcome. Thank you.